Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here, and I'm very grateful to be here myself. My name is Jacob Yarbrough, and I serve here as one of the elders at, at Calvary Bible Church. And this morning, I'll be reading uh, scripture reading to you. To you, uh, I'll be reading from the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter one, verses one through five. And I invite you to join along with me as I as I read. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And Milton will call call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. And may God bless the reading of his word. The book of the prophet Malachi, he lived about a hundred years after the Israelites had returned from their Babylonian exile, and his message was directed to the people who had been living in Jerusalem for some time now. The temple had been rebuilt a while ago, and things were not going well. Just remember the stories from Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, when the Israelites first returned from exile, their hopes were high. They would return and rebuild their lives and the temple. All of the great promises of the prophets would come true. The Messiah would come and set up God's kingdom over a unified Israel and over the nations and bring justice and peace for all. But that's not what happened. The Israelites who repopulated the city proved to be just as unfaithful to God as their ancestors, resulting in poverty and injustice. And so in Malachi, we find out just how corrupt this new generation has become. The book's designed as a series of disputes, and most sections begin with God saying something, making a claim or an accusation, and then Israel will disagree or question God's statement. And then God will respond and offer the last word. This happens six times. In the first three disputes, God exposes Israel's corruption, and in the final three disputes, he confronts their corruption. And the overall impression you get from these arguments and disputes is that the exile fundamentally didn't change anything in the people. Israel's hearts are as hard as ever. The first dispute starts when God says that he still loves his covenant people despite their failures. And Israel rudely objects, saying, how have you shown us any love? And so God reminds them of how he graciously chose the family of Jacob, their ancestor, to become the carrier of God's covenant promises, instead of Esau, his brother, and the family that came from him, who eventually came to ruin. Remember the stories from Genesis and the book of Obadiah. So right from this first dispute, Israel is exposed as suspicious doubting God's love and faithfulness. The second dispute exposes a problem with Israel's second temple. God accuses the people of despising and defiling the temple. And the people fire back, how have we despised you? And so God responds by focusing on the people, how they're bringing shamefully lame offerings of these sick, blemished animals that show that they don't value or honor their God. But it's not just the people, it's the priests, too, who run the temple. They not only tolerate, but participate in these corrupt forms of worship. From top to bottom, God's people have 
proven faithless. In the third dispute, God accuses the Israelite men of treachery against him and their wives, which, of course, they deny. And God exposes the toxic combination of idolatry and divorce taking place. You have Israelite men marrying non-Israelite women and then adopting the worship of their wives' ancestral gods into their homes. Remember the story from Nehemiah chapter 13. And so Malachi connects this to a wave of men divorcing their wives for no good reason. And the people are all fine with this. And Malachi says, no, it's a betrayal of your covenant with God. And so Malachi transitions into the second set of disputes that confront Israel's rebellion. So the fourth dispute begins with the Israelites accusing God of neglect, saying, where is the God of justice? They see injustice and corruption abounding, and God seems to do nothing. So God responds by saying that he'll send a messenger who will prepare the people for God's personal return in the day of the Lord. He will come like fire to purify his people and to remove idolatry and sexual immorality and injustice so that only the faithful remnant is left to become his people. In the fifth dispute, God calls the people to turn back to him, to which the people say, how can we turn back? And so God confronts their selfishness. He shows how they've stopped offering a tithe of their income to the temple. Now, that word tithe just means one-tenth. It's the amount of their income and produce that the Israelites were to annually donate to support the temple and its priests. The practice is laid out in different parts of the Torah. Now, we know from Malachi and from the book of Nehemiah that the people were neglecting this responsibility. And so the temple was falling into disrepair. And so God confronts them. He says he wants to bless them with abundance, but only if they're going to be faithful. In the final dispute, the people accuse God and say that it's pointless to serve him. They observe wicked, prideful people succeeding in life, and God does nothing. And God's response, for the first time in the book, is not a speech, but rather a short story about the faithful remnant in Israel, people who fear the Lord, and they love to get together and talk about how to honor God and serve him. And so God orders that a scroll of remembrance be written for these people so that they can read the scroll and remember God's character and promises. Malachi, he's reflecting here on the divine gift of the scriptures, how they point us to the past to remember what God has done in order to inspire faithfulness and hope for the future, which leads to the conclusion of the book. It picks up and develops the imagery of the fourth dispute about the coming day of the Lord, but it develops it further. God says that he's appointed a day of purifying judgment that will consume the wicked from among his people. But what the conclusion adds is the future of the faithful remnant, because for them, the day of the Lord is not a threat. It's a cause for joy. It'll be like the rays of the rising sun that bring healing and life and hope for the future. And so Malachi's disputes come to a close, but there's still a bit more to this book. The final three verses, they're not part of the disputes, and actually they function like a concluding appendix, bringing closure not just to Malachi, but to the whole collection of the Torah and the prophets. So first, the reader is called to remember the law, or the Torah, of my servant Moses. This recalls the story and the laws of the covenant that you find in the first five books of the Bible. But then we hear this summary of the books of the prophets. I will send the prophet Elijah before the day of the Lord, who will restore the hearts of God's people. 
So this conclusion, it summarizes the Torah and the prophets as a unified story that points to the future. Israel was redeemed by God, and then they betrayed him through their rebellion and hard hearts, breaking the laws of the Torah. But the scriptures anticipate a future day when God's going to send a new prophet, a Moses, a new Elijah, who will restore God's people and heal their hard hearts. Remember all of the promises from Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And so this concluding appendix presents the scriptures as a divine gift to read and to ponder and to pray over. They tell the truth about the human condition, about our selfishness and our sin. But they also announce God's promise that one day he would send a messenger and then show up personally to confront evil, to restore his people and bring his healing justice. And it's that future hope that Malachi and the Torah and all of the prophets are about. All right, uh, that that video is from Bible Project. Anybody ever anybody familiar with Bible Project? It's really good stuff. They're all on YouTube, so I would encourage you to do that. But that's just a, a book that, or excuse me, that's a video that kind of summarizes the book as a whole. So today we're actually beginning our series in the book of Malachi. This is actually our seventh week in the Minor Prophets. We've spent, as you probably know, two weeks in the book of Obadiah. Uh, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament, and Obadiah, in a word, is the word of pride. It talks about the Edomites' pride over the nation of Israel. So we spent two weeks in the book of Obadiah. We spent four weeks in the book of Haggai. Haggai, in a word, is the word mission. The mission in the book of Haggai is to rebuild the temple. So the whole book of Haggai is centered around that particular theme and that particular project. And then today we start our series in the book of Malachi. We'll spend probably six or seven weeks going through this book. And in a word, the book of Malachi talks about being genuine. Being genuine. The passage that we see today, really from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, what God does in the midst of a series of disputes, like he mentions, there's six disputes in the book of Malachi. The very first dispute is Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And what God does is he puts on trial, he puts his love on trial and proves to the nation of Israel and then us today that he truly does love them, that God's love is truly genuine. Okay, so how many of you have ever purchased a product before and you thought it was genuine and you turned out not to be? Okay, when I was in high school, I bought some $10 uh, Oakley sunglasses. And um, either those were stolen or, of course, they were fake. They weren't genuine. Some of us have purchased a genuine leather belt from Walmart. It's probably not, Okay. We all have come to that experience where we purchase something, we want something to be genuine, but it truly does not, we find out that it's not that in case. Uh, when I was in college, I really liked a particular TV show, and uh, it was the TV show Pawn Stars. Anybody know that TV show? Okay. Don't email me. Okay. Um, so so the, the show, what people do is they take, you know, family heirlooms. From, you know, great, their great-great-grandmother has this painting of Monet, right? So they, these people, their great-great-grandchildren take this most prized possession, this heirloom that's been in the family for like hundreds of years, and they take it to this pawn shop in Las Vegas. And what do they often find out, right? They often find out that this relic, this, this heirloom is not genuine, it's not authentic. When I was in college, I remember this one guy, this middle-aged guy, 
took out his most prized possession of his collection of guns. He takes this pistol, okay, if you, it's like 17th century pistol, and he brings it in, hoping he gets about $1,000 for that. And he brings it in, he puts it before this pawn shop owner and his son, and th- what do they do? If you know that show, they call in an expert. Well, this expert comes in, takes a look at this pistol in about three seconds, and says, well, it's not genuine. Of course, the guy's heartbroken because it's his family, you know, it's the, the gem of his collection. And then the expert, then they, they ask a question, well, how do you know it's fake? How do you know it's not a genuine pistol from the 17th century? And then the expert then goes and points out little markers and the patina and all of the different things that would verify that this pistol is truly genuine from that time era. And, of course, the guy is heartbroken anyways. Won't get up into what he does after that, but moving on. There are certain markers. There are certain things that we need to have in the Christian life that show us if we are genuine, if God's love for us is genuine. And what we see in the book of Malachi, he covers a different topics to see the genuine nature of their worship, of their tithe, of their obedience, of their righteousness. So all of this book is all about the genuine nature of those particular topics. When I, was, when I first taught this book, when I first was starting to study it, I thought that this book all centered on the genuine nature of our worship. But that doesn't encompass the whole. What God does in each of the disputes, he isolates this particular issue and this issue and this issue, their tithe, their worship, their sacrifice, their obedience, and he tells them if they're worship if their tithe is truly genuine but what god does in malachi chapter one instead of going and picking on them he first says and proves that his love for the nation of israel is genuine is real is authentic let me just ask you a question how many of you have ever doubted god's love for you how many of you have ever wondered if god even cares How many of you have ever thought about God being a mean kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass? We all at times question the genuine nature of God's love for us. Amen? Am I the only one in the room? Even people with education and all this kind of stuff, we all struggle with it. But why do we struggle? What is going on in our life when we question the love of God? But even better yet, what proofs? Do we have, like Israel, what proofs do we have today of God's certain, authentic, genuine love for us? That's the space I want to talk to you about today. So if you have your Bible, go to Malachi chapter 1. Today we're going to talk about God's genuine love. We'll see it in the nation of Israel, but we'll also kind of transfer that to us here today. How do we know for sure that God truly does love us? So since we are starting a new book, this is our third book in this series. Like I said, we did Obadiah and then Haggai, and now we're doing the book of Malachi, which is the Italian painter. Bad joke, sorry. I, I stole it from another seminary person. So anyways, this is where you get it. This, we all tell cheesy jokes in seminaries. This is the way it is. So in the book of Malachi, it is the last book written in the Old Testament. And since we're starting this book, I really want to do two different things. Number one, I want to introduce this book kind of paint the background, the context, what's going on in the nation of Israel, what's the occasion, what's the audience, who's the author. We want to kind of talk about the background information, but then we will close our time with the first dispute in Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So in order to introduce this book of Malachi, 
the first verse contains three different pieces of information that we need to understand this book. It contains the occasion, it contains the audience, and it contains the author. Notice verse 1 of chapter 1. This is introducing the book. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now here we see the occasion, we see the audience, and we see the author of the book of Malachi. What's the occasion? Well, we really don't see it in English, but in the original language in Hebrew, if you were to know Hebrew, it would kind of just stand out on the page. How we understand the occasion is in the second word in the English translation is the word oracle. When I was looking up this, this word in the original language, I expected to see a particular Hebrew word, but it's not that in, at all. It's actually the Hebrew word masa, which means a burden or a heavy message that is about to come. So when Israel in the, first, in, in the 5th century B.C. hears this, the oracle of the word, they hear the word masa, which is the oracle word, and they hear a burden, a heavy message is about to come to them. When I see the word oracle in, in English and in Hebrew, it's kind of like when your family members come to you, you know, they walk in the door and they say to you, hey, um, we got to talk. Okay? Anybody ever had that moment before? So what happens? You know something serious is about to go down. You track with me on that? So this is a heavy message that God is wanting to speak a burdensome message to who? The audience, the oracle, the burden, the burdensome word of the Lord to Israel. Now, what we see in the original language, obviously he's talking to all Jews in the 5th century B.C. We'll talk more about that chronological context in just a moment. But here specifically, when we look at the book of Malachi, he's not just really, I mean, he is, he's talking to the nation of Israel, yes, but specifically he's talking to Jews that are living in the city of Jerusalem. Then we see the author uh, through the prophet Malachi. You know, if you were to know Hebrew, and you should learn it if you really want to nerd out, okay, it's really, it's really confusing language, but moving on. Um, in Hebrew, names mean a lot. They, they mean a ton, okay? But in English, names don't really mean a whole lot, okay? Like, for example, my name is Byron, Durr. Does anybody know what Byron means? I don't. Maybe you can inform me afterwards. Maybe uh, my, my parents know. I don't know. But I'm named after my grandfather. But here, the word Malachi means something. In Hebrew, names were very important. They either described someone's purpose in life or how they were born. Okay? So the word Malachi comes from actually two different Hebrew words. It comes from the Hebrew word Melech, which means messenger or king. And then the E on the end means my. Super TMI. It is a pronominal suffix in Hebrew. So you have Malachi, means my messenger. That's the name of Malachi, my messenger. That God has appointed this man named Malachi to give a message to the nation of Israel. Now, some scholars believe that Malachi here is a pseudonym. It's not really somebody's name, but like people, scholars make mountains out of molehills. That's just the way we are. Um, there's no reason to think that there wasn't a guy named Malachi. Malachi means my messenger as a whole. Keep in mind, too, so we're introducing the book. So I'm going to kind of go into a lot of detail this morning on the background information of this book to help us understand it in its whole. 
But keep in mind, how did God really speak to people in the Old Testament? Yeah, through prophets. I mean, there were other ways that God gave special revelation, that God directly spoke to humanity. Think about some of the examples that God, in weird story, is that God spoke through a donkey. The donkey gave special revelation from God to a guy named Balaam, right? God also would write on walls, as we saw in the book of Daniel. God would speak from his own mouth. But most commonly, God would appoint prophets to share a message from God to a particular people doing a particular task or a particular sin issue, causing, asking them to repent. But what's the most common message of the prophets in the Old Testament? And if you were to look through Isaiah, through Malachi, what is really the main central theme of almost every prophet of the Old Testament? It is this. It is covenant blessing requires covenant faithfulness. That covenant blessing requires covenant faithfulness. That in order for the nation of Israel to experience that God always keeps his promises, but in order for them to experience the blessing of God, they must then adhere to the covenant, and we'll talk about what that is here in just a few, few moments. So we see the occasion, a heavy message. We see the audience, Jews in the nation, or excuse me, in the city of Jerusalem. And then we see the author of Malachi, who is the prophet that God has appointed to give a particular message to the nation of Israel. And then we see the date. Now, when was this written? Uh, it was written probably about 430 B.C., Five, about 430 years before the birth of Christ. Okay, let me put that in perspective. Well, and I'll do it, I'll put it in bigger, broader perspective in the Bible here in just a moment with the whole kind of chronological map of the Old Testament. But when did Zerubbabel, when was Haggai written? You remember that? It was written about, what, 520 B.C.? So then what happens in about 516 B.C., Zerubbabel finishes his temple. So this is about 85 years after Zerubbabel's temple is complete. So these are the great, maybe great-great-grandchildren of the people that built the temple. And what we see from the book of Malachi is that the nation of Israel is wandering away from the faithfulness of the covenant. That they are wandering away from what God has asked them to do. And if you know the repetitive pattern in the Old Testament that there are really six different stages of Israel. They first have pride, I don't need God, and then they have rebellion, and then they are disciplined by God, and then there's restoration, and then they humble themselves, and then there's success. So pride, rebellion, discipline, restoration, humility, and then success. What I think here in the book of Malachi is that they're in the second piece of that cycle, that they're in the point of rebellion, that they're running away from God, that they are not adhering to the holiness of the sacrifices in the temple, that they are not genuine in their marriages, they're not genuine in their tithe, they're not genuine in their worship, that they are running from God and all of his commandments that he has put before them. So that's where we are. The date is about 430 B.C. Okay, all catch up to me. All right. Think about the Old Testament. If you can think about the chronological time frame of the Old Testament, where again, we're introducing this book, so we're going to be a little bit more information heavy, just to help us understand what's really going on in the culture. So if you can think about it from a chronological standpoint, so 2000 B.C. is who? Is Abraham, and then 1500 is Moses, 1000 is David, 500 is Zerubbabel in the return from Babylonian captivity, and zero is Jesus. You tracking with me? So 2,000 is Abraham, 1,500 is Moses, 1,000 is David, 500 is 
the return under Zerubbabel, and zero is Jesus. Remember kind of the Old Testament history. So Abraham is who? Abraham is the father of what? The nation of Israel that God comes to him in Genesis chapter 12, presents to him the Abrahamic covenant. The three pieces of the Abrahamic covenant are land, seed, and blessing. The reason we believe that Israel still has a future, a lot of reasons, but one reason is because they've never received the land portion of the Abrahamic covenant. So God comes to Abraham. Abraham becomes the father of the nation of Israel. Abraham has a son named who? Named Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons named what? Jacob and Esau. Esau is then the father of Edom, modern-day Palestine, okay? Put it all in modern-day perspective. And then Jacob is the father of the nation of Israel because Jacob's name turns into Israel. And then Jacob has how many sons? Remember that? Twelve. Okay, 12, wait, okay, there we go. I did 17 there for a second. He has 12 sons, all who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Track with me, everybody catching up with me, everybody understand? Cool. All right, I'm going to keep on going, flying. All right, so we have the 12 tribes of Israel, and then what happens? The end of the book of Genesis, there's a famine in the land of Canaan. So what do his 12 sons do? They go down to Egypt, they find Joseph there. Then they settle in the land of Egypt for how many years? For four hundred years then they become enslaved to the pharaoh egyptian pharaoh and then what happens after 400 years of enslavement god appoints moses in 1500 bc right around there to go to pharaoh and says let my people go right remember that and pharaoh in his stubbornness of his heart the hardness of heart he doesn't let the people go so then god casts the 10 plagues moses then leads the people out of egypt there are 40 years in the desert then they come into the promised land, modern-day Canaan, or modern-day Israel. Moses then cannot enter the promised land. Jo- Joshua takes up the throne, goes into the nation of Israel. And then we have in Israel, so it goes Abraham, Moses, and then you have right after Moses, after they enter the promised land, you have a period of the judges. Remember that? There's a 400-year period of the judges. Judges like Gideon, Samson, Ehud, Athenial, Deborah. But in that time frame, the nation of Israel is a theocracy, and the judges are appointed by God to then free the nation of Israel from foreign oppression. So then, in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Samuel, you see, especially in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the nation of Israel gets a little frustrated. They start looking at the other nations, and they don't want to be ruled by God in the theocracy. They want a king. So in the book of 1 Samuel, ushers in the period of the kings of the nation of Israel. You have Saul, then David, then Solomon. Then you have, with Solomon's sons Rehoboam, what do you have from there? You have the civil war. You have the union and the confederacy. Okay, remember that? You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is taken away by Assyria. The southern kingdom, about 150 years later, is taken away by Babylon. And then Israel lives in Babylonian captivity for how long? For 70 years. And then about 500 B.C., they begin to return to the promised land, the nation of Israel. And that is where we pick up with the book of Malachi. They've been in the nation. They've been returned in the land of Israel for about 85 to 100 years. So this is the great-great-grandchildren of those who returned originally, who built the temple. And kind of what makes this book unique is not only, you know, it is the last book written in the Old Testament chronologically, But also it's a series, as he says, is a series of six different disputes that God puts to test the genuine, authentic nature of their tithe, of their worship, of their marriage, of their obedience. But what I love about this passage today is that God first puts his own love for them on trial. 
He shows them, he proves to them he truly loves them and that the promises that he has given to them are still secure. So if you have your Bible, go to Malachi chapter 1. That's all the background information of chapter 1, verse 1. That is the chronological time frame. And then he begins the dispute with a statement. Notice this. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say... How have you loved us? In the original language, this first phrase, I have loved you, kind of gives a timeless effect that God has, God does, and God will always love the nation of Israel. I have loved you. God's love for Israel is timeless. It is providential. God's love for Israel and God's love for believers here today, His love is timeless, it is secure, it is pure, it is infinite, inescapable. It is comforting, reassuring, everlasting, tender, never-ending, unchanging, and steadfast. We know that to be true. If you've been in church for any length of time, then I would imagine you, intellectually speaking, You would adhere to the fact that God's love is providential, that God's love is inescapable, that God truly loves you. It is never-ending. It is infinite. We would adhere to that mentally. But what happens oftentimes in life, that when our experiences don't match what we think should happen, what is the first thing we always do? We always question the love of God. I I mean, am I the only one? Everybody tracking with me on that? Because notice the response of the Israelites here. God says, I love you, Israel. And what do they say? How have you loved us? So God, in a sense, puts on trial his love for the nation of Israel. And the question is, is this, is God's love for them genuine? Is it real? Is it authentic? Is the promises that God has given to them, are they still certain today? But what's really going on? Why would they question I mean, they're back in the promised land. I mean, they have the blessing of God. Why would they question God's love? Have you ever noticed, um, we don't question God's love when things are going well. You track with me on that? We only really question God's love when things aren't going well. And when there is a diagnosis or a tragedy or a trial in our life, that's the moment we say, you know what, God? I know you love me. I know it to be true, but I'm not so sure because my experience tells me something else. What's going on in the nation of Israel? Why would they say, how have you loved us? Think about the past and think about their present. The past. What's happened to them? Covenant blessing requires covenant faithfulness. That they have experienced <laughs> terrible trials and terrible experiences from all the foreign oppressors that they've had to this point that they have been deported to the nation of babylon that they stayed there for 70 years that all of the past philistine wars the edomites and the amalekites and all of the trials that they have experienced so their past experience makes them question god's love but then also the present experience what's going on you know I think sometimes when we um, want to follow God, we have delusions of grandeur. That we think if I follow God, everything's going to be great. You know, everything's going to go perfect. I'm going to have all this and that and this and that. 
And that's not what happens. What's going on in the present nation of Israel? They came back from Babylonian captivity, and what they find? That everything is destroyed, okay? The city walls are destroyed, the temple's gone, people are living in their homes, people are living in their land, there's trials, there's problems. Go read the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah if you want to be reminded of all the problems that they are facing in the present. So, of course, the nation of Israel... They experience tragedy and problems, and the first thing that we do as human beings is say, okay, God, you don't really love me. You don't love me. But what I love about this passage is that God doesn't just leave them there. He doesn't just say, I have loved you, and they say, how I've loved you, and then God doesn't just say, well, just read the Bible, okay? What what does the Bible say? He, He proves it to them. He shows them that he truly loves them. Notice this. This is the first proof in verse 2 of his love for the nation of Israel. Was not Esau's, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob and I have essentially hated Esau. Dispute number one is if God, is God's love genuine. They doubt his love. He makes a statement. I love them. He doubts their love. They doubt his love. And then proof number one is that he chose Jacob, he chose Israel and not, he did not choose Esau. I mean, they're probably looking at the nation of Edom and they're looking at their situation and looking at Israel's situation and saying that they have it better than they do. If you know the book of Obadiah, what's happening? That judgment's going to come to the land of Edom. And the Israelites are saying, did you really choose us and not Esau? Did you, not, did you really choose Israel and not Edom? And God reminds them here that he proves his love to them by choosing Jacob and not Esau, to choose Israel and not the Edomites and the Palestinians. How did God choose and prove his love? Number one, he chose Jacob. But then notice proof number two is in verse three. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. So how does God prove his love to the nation of Israel? He chose them and he punishes Edom, he punishes their enemies. How has God proven his love for you? How does he show it even today? Because oftentimes, a lot of us are like my seven-year-old, Bryn, who I love dearly. But one day, to kind of show you our skewed view of God's love, my children are great sermon illustrations. Okay, poor children. They're going to look back on these sermons 30 years from now like, Dad, why'd you tell that story? Okay, (laughs) you know, it's going to be the embarrassed teenage years like this of my children. Okay, okay. a couple of weeks ago, uh, Olivia, my five-year-old, and Bryn were fighting. Of course, right? That's what kids do. But they were fighting over an iPad. Now, don't email me. Okay. So, don't email me. Um, but Olivia had it first, right? So Olivia's playing on it. And then what is Bryn? Of course, Bryn comes over and takes it from her. And then it's like World War II in my household. So then I take the iPad from Bryn and I give it back to Olivia because Olivia had it first. So what what does Bryn say at that moment? You don't love me anymore, right? Okay. 
She says, or she says, you don't love me anymore. You love Olivia more than you love me. And I say, what? No, I don't. Yes, you do. You gave her the iPad. That's circumstantial. She knows that dad loves her. She knows that I would do anything in the world for her. She knows it to be true. I've proven it to her time and time and time and time again. But in that moment of circumstances, in that moment of disappointment, in the moment of doubt, in the moment of frustration, the first conclusion that she comes to is not that dad is fair, but that dad doesn't love me. Okay? That's all of us. That's all of us. The moment something terrible happens in our life, that's the first conclusion we come to. Amen? Am I the only one? Are you tracking with me? That's what the nation of Israel is saying. And they're not looking at the blessings of God to this point. They're not looking at the fact that they're even back in the promised land. They're not looking at the fact that God is protecting them from their enemies. He's given them great leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild the nation. All they are looking at are the problems and disappointments of their life to justify their perspective that God no longer loves them. But God here proves it. He chose Jacob and not Esau. Jacob stole, in a sense, or Esau sold the birthright to Jacob over a pot of Hebrew chili. And then Jacob steals the covenantal blessing from Esau by dressing up as a hairy beast, okay, like Esau, his brother. He steals it, and God still chose to sovereignly choose Jacob, who became Israel, as the father of the great nation that we have in the world today. God proves it by choosing Israel and by punishing Esau. And then notice the results. This is the point today. This is the point that I see in Malachi chapter 1, 1 through 5. And this is the first dispute. Dispute number one is over, is God's love for Israel genuine? And the point of the passage is that when in doubt, look to the proof of God's genuine love. The proof is that he chose and that he punishes Edom. That's essentially the point of Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And this is a principle that we all should live by. That when we doubt God's love... Look to the proof of God's love. Don't look through the lens of emotions and trials and tribulations and disappointment. Look to the truth of God's word. How do you know that God loves you? Today, someone came to you in the parking lot right after service. And ask you the question, why do you believe God loves you? How would you answer that? Because we believe, intellectually speaking at least, that God's love is providential, is timeless, is infinite, is pure, is inescapable, is comforting, reassuring, everlasting. We believe his love is tender, unending, unchanging, steadfast. Right? But how do you prove it? I mean, look at... I'm just going to flip to the book of Romans real quick and just read the end of chapter 8. This is what we all intellectually believe. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? We believe that, but we struggle to in the midst of pain. What proof do you have that God truly today loves you? I'm going to give you a few verses, and I'll encourage you to write these down if you want to. The question I have is, this is the result, verse 5, is the result of them embracing God's love. The Lord be magnified beyond Israel that one day that they will understand the true fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to the nation of Israel. And they will say that the Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. But the question I have is this, is so what? How do we apply it to our life? And what proof do you have that God truly loves you? Number one is what? Yeah, Jesus, and more specifically what? The cross, amen? Romans 5, 8. What does it say? But what? God demonstrated, proved, showed, manifested, revealed. But God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, amen? So how does God prove his love for you? The reason I'm doing this is because we all are Israel. We all struggle. When our circumstances go, and they explode up, and and then we get a diagnosis. I had a friend this week. I had coffee with a friend, and he said that his wife got a diagnosis this week that his wife has a max of seven years to live. Now, that sounds like a long time, but if someone came to you and said, all you have is seven years left, I imagine the first stop you would have made, Lord, Why? You know, don't you care about me? The way we know, the proof that we have that God's love is sure is the cross. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What other proof? What other verse do we have in this regard? First John chapter 4. First John chapter 4 verses 9 through 11. How has God proved his love on the cross? Romans 5, 8. First John 4, 9 through 11. By this, the love of God was made known to us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment or propitiation for our sin. If you notice here, it actually gives you another proof of God's love. Number one, that he died for us and manifest his love to us. By this, the love of God was manifested to us. So number one, we have a proof of God's love because of the cross, but also number two, because of the life that he's given to us. That eternal life... When you believe in Jesus Christ, there's a common misconception in churches today that the only thing, if I believe in Jesus, the only thing that it changes is that life. When you believe in Jesus, it changes this life too. Amen? That I've come, that you might have life and have it abundantly, that you are born again, that Jesus Christ has come to give us aliveness, as we talked about in the Gospel of John, that the change that we have in our life. I would imagine, especially if you come to Christ as an adult, you can see the way you were and the way you are. That change, according to 1 John 4, 9 through 11, tells you also that God loves you. Not only does the cross, but the life that you have in Him tells you that He loves you. Number one is the cross. Number two is 
we would say predestination or election or the elect that God chose you to be his child. First John 3, chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, 29. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, in the same way God chose Israel over Esau, God chose you to be one of his elect. We could talk about that later on if you want to have a discussion. But this is the truth. He's sovereign. He chose. Number one, he proves his love on the cross by choosing you. And number three, by giving you blessing. By giving you blessing. Romans chapter 8, 28 through 35. So whenever life... You know, my dad, about a month before he died, said, you know, Byron, I'm 64 years old, and I've realized that my, my life is pretty ordinary. What a sad reality. Because he was a believer in Jesus Christ. He didn't see what he had. He didn't see all of the blessings that God has given him. All he saw was the trials and discouragement of his life, and he justified that in that position. We all are like Israel. We all doubt God's love. Amen? Can I get an amen to that one? So remember the proof. I would like to leave you three different questions. Question number one is this. Do you currently today doubt God's love? Do you today, are you doubting God's love for you? Question number two is, if you are, what are the circumstances that are blinding you to that truth? I guarantee you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you are doubting the love of God, even though you know it intellectually to be true, there's something clouding your judgment, that the enemy has a foothold in your life, that there's something that he is using in your life, whether it be sin, or trial, or disappointment, or discouragement, or a diagnosis or conflict in your marriage, conflict in your family. I don't know. But if you doubt the love of God, then there is something that is blinding you to that truth. Question number one is, do you doubt God's love? If so, what circumstances cloud your judgment? How do you know? Question number two is, how do you know for sure that God loves you? What proofs do we have? And we already mentioned that. And then question number three is this, how can you remind yourself this week that God's love for you is timeless, providential, secure, pure, infinite, inescapable, comforting, reassuring, everlasting, tender, never-ending, unchanging, and steadfast? When you doubt, look to the proofs of God's love for you. And that his love is genuine, and his love is sure. Before I close, if you do not know the love of God, if you don't have a relationship with God, if all this is kind of Chinese to you, it's foreign, okay? You don't understand, it's wah, 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 as your parents talked when you were a teenager, okay? That's just the way my children are already becoming. If all of this seems foreign, then I would imagine you're probably not a child of God. You're not born again. You're not changed. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you don't know where you will go if you die tonight, then the scripture says that God, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever 
believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you have never trusted in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, I can think of no better time to do so. Because God displayed his love for you on the cross, and he's paid for your sin in full. And if you believe and trust in him as Savior and Lord of your life, you shall be saved. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this morning. It's just a very relevant message in all times and all seasons of life. That we question your love. That we, we, when we encounter pain or trials or, or difficulties, the first thing we go to, whether we realize it or not, is, do you really love me, God? Do you care about me? And Lord, I just pray in that moment that the enemy would not get a foothold in our life, but that we would revert back to the truth of your word, that how you have proved it time and time again. And Lord, that we would put our, our, a stake down in the ground, that we are not going to falter in that, in that view of your love, because your love does not falter. Lord, I pray that we would relish, that we would remember, that we would remind ourselves of your timeless, infinite love for us every single day. That whenever the trials of the world come, that we would be able to remember who you are and what you've promised us. That's my prayer. I pray that we would not be like Israel in Malachi chapter 1, but that we would love you, we would serve you, and that we would just enjoy and remember your inescapable love. Thank you for this church. It's a great church. I love this church. Lord, thank you for the kindness and the unity that we have. And I pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name.